0: Our next guest has researched and presented on organizational behavior, human development, psychosocial theory, multigenerational intelligence, unconscious bias, and diversity and inclusion for more than 20 years. He has a list of accomplishments that could fill bookshelves. When companies and leaders are stumped about what to do next, their first call is to Dr. James Pogue. I'm sure you'll be the right kind of uncomfortable on this episode of The Focus. Inspiration from creative leaders, authors, CEOs, and entertainers, people who are truly at the top of their game day after day after day. How do they zero in on their vision? What is their why? we'll learn what motivates these visionaries and what's launched them to the next level as they offer practical advice that anyone can put into action. My name is Taylor Cole Longacre. Welcome to The Focus. Dr. James Pogue, welcome to The Focus.
1: Thank you, I'm glad to be here.
0: Well, you are an expert in diversity, inclusion, and bias. Of course, this is a hot topic yes. currently, and it will continue to be. Tell me a little bit about what organizations are facing today, and what are some of the steps they can take toward change?
1: Sure, I mean, in, to your point, it's something that we're facing now, and it's something that's been historically uh, been there. It's whether it's been building and it's exploded, or whether we're in a, a quiet moment, it, it, it's still there. And that's part of what people are facing. Am I dealing with an explosion? or am I dealing with the quiet time? Am I dealing with something that's been building, or am I I dealing with something that exploded a month ago and now we have some aftermath to to recognize? So I think that there's a variety of things that, that, that are occurring, so if I start broadly speaking, where is your organization and what does what is it doing along the lines of diversity, inclusion, and bias? Does it have a basic sort of demographic diversity um, solution to its challenge? Or is it digging deeper into the unconscious bias pieces that engage uh, most of our thinking and most of what we do? And so dependent on where the problem is, is also what lends itself to what the solutions may be.
0: Okay, and so are you finding that for your Um, organizations that you support, they're calling you and saying, I've got a problem, or are they taking a step back and saying, you know what, I need your help. I'm going to get ahead of this.
1: I think the answer is yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But even those that are trying to get ahead, they know they're behind. I I haven't met an organization yet that would say, yeah, we've got it right. And we just want to, you know, take the next 10 steps ahead. No, they know they are uh, not where they want to be but they also know they're not, they're not where they were. So they, they know that they made some progress. But there are some organizations whose head, heads are just coming out of the sand and they're just looking around and saying, oh my goodness, what have I been ignoring for the last five, 10, 15 years? Here's a question that I ask many of my clients either in groups or individually, and I'll say, out of 100% of the information related to race, diversity, inclusion bias that you think you should know, how much do you actually know? Hmm. And it, there's always an initial pause. And then I, to fill the space, I say, let me tell you what I think about me. In today's moment, given everything that I know, and what I think I'm supposed to know, and I do this every day, I, at a maximum, maybe 40, 45% of what I should know. Because I'm learning over and over again with each passing day what I wasn't taught in high school, what I wasn't taught in the military, what I wasn't taught in college or in grad school or as a, in postdoc, what I didn't learn. And in some cases, it was because I didn't know to look. And in some cases, it was hidden, and sometimes aggressively so. So I don't know a lot. And so oftentimes, the answers that I get are often somewhere in the single digits, you know, 5, 10, 15%. Well, if that's the case, then we all have a lot of learning to do. And for me, it's a, it's a level set for people. You know, it's okay. You can relax. Yeah. You can go from, if you start at 15% of knowledge and you double it, you still have an F.
0: Right, right, right. But that's
1: okay, you doubled it, that's that's good stuff.
0: But at least acknowledge what you don't know and be willing to improve your score.
1: Because that humility is gonna take us a long way.
0: You know, on your website you talk a lot about the right kind of uncomfortable or the right uncomfortable. Tell me what that means and and how can we get into that uncomfortable zone? Sure,
1: I, I think it started for me when I began to recognize one of my own biases. And that was that some of my white male colleagues are all bad people. Like, I, I remember getting an email one time, a guy was a chief financial officer, and he was retiring to spend time with family. And in the back of my head, I heard myself saying, sure, you took some money, you were chasing somebody around a desk, you are not a good guy. Then I'm like, James, you don't know who this person is. You don't know him. You don't know his life, you don't know anything about him. So why would you be thinking that? Isn't that a bit sexist? Yeah. Isn't that a bit racist? It was a, hu- a humbling mm-hmm. moment for mm-hmm. myself. And so then I think about the audiences that I serve. And so you're traveling around and you're giving all these talks, many of the people in my audiences are are, are white guys. And they don't wanna show up to get punched in the gut, slapped in the face, in terms of diversity, inclusion, and bias. What do they do to deserve that?
0: Hmm.
1: I want them to be the right kind of uncomfortable. I want everybody in the audience to be the right kind of uncomfortable so they can make the next steps. If you're feeling like you're being beaten and and abused and treated poorly, you're not going to be engaged in in the work that needs to be done. But if you're just the right kind of uncomfortable, yeah, you can get some work done. And so that's where the balance is. This has to be chess and not checkers.
0: Mm, That's good. And for a lot of people, diversity and inclusion and bias is closely tied to beliefs and values. How in the world do we start to shift perceptions and um, those biases and and shift where people are if it's heavily tied to their beliefs and values?
1: Yeah, so I like to start with biases and then work backwards to inclusion and diversity. So biases, I mean, a lot of that comes from the the, the way that our brains are are, are engaged, the chemistry, uh, the biology of our brains. Uh, Bias is natural, bias is normal, everyone has it. All of us are picking up 11 million or so pieces of information at any given time. Anybody watching this has heard every word that you and I have said, and their brains have picked up all of it. They know what you're wearing, they know how many times you've blinked, how many times I've I've tapped my fingers. Our brains know all of these things. But then our brains need to figure out how to make decisions based upon that information. And how do they do that? They create shortcuts. And these shortcuts are bias. These biases are influenced, to your point, our values, our beliefs, our history, our upbringing, whether it be religious or rural and farming or a city or otherwise, all these things inform the shortcuts that our brains take. Right. So if we can unpack that and say, well, if you know that your brain is creating shortcuts and you know it's informed by your values and beliefs then we can start to backtrack and reverse engineer what some of those uh, unconscious biases are. Bring them to the conscious, mm-hmm. and then you can make a more clear-headed and clear-eyed decision about what it is you need to do currently and what you need to do next.
0: Wow, wow. And what, how, about how long could it take to move and to make that shift? I would imagine for some cultures, for some people, that could take lifetimes.
1: It could. But I think that what I have found is that if we can have conversations, deep, interesting, complex, critical thinking conversations, we can make a lot of progress pretty quickly. Most of us are interested and intrigued or at the very least curious about something that's different than us. It's the smaller number of us that are like, I don't want to learn anything new ever. It's a small number of people. And for those folks, they don't have to. But most of us are very interested in what's next, what's around the corner. You know, whether it be interesting food or interesting language, whether it be where you're from and why you believe, why you think the way that you do or not. I mean, one of the things I do on my um, podcast and otherwise, I ask a question like, do you are you a fan of biscuits or cornbread? What is your thing? If you had to choose, is it biscuits or cornbread? Right, my grandmother would say, with no uncertain terms, it is cornbread. cornbread. <laughs> <laughs> to be very clear, it's cornbread. My grandmother
0: too. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean,
1: she say, you know, you can get a good biscuit anywhere. Yeah. You know, but if you want some cornbread, you have to have a black pot that's really heavy, and you have to put your foot in it and, and do all these things. Well, okay, great. That's based on who she is, yeah. where she's from, her values, and the belief systems that go along with that. Right. There's other friends like, nah. It's biscuits.
0: Right, yeah. My other grandmother can make some delicious biscuits and she would argue with my other grandmother about it. (laughs) And then there's the idea of
1: what kind of cornbread is it? Hot water cornbread? Is it sweet cornbread? Is it not sweet cornbread? Do you put raisins or or corn or something else in your cornbread? So all of these things, you can start to see how it influences things. Then we can easily make the connection between food and culture. Mm Right. So that becomes food becomes a very good example of how our biases start to inform our thinking. Your cornbread isn't good. Thus, you're not a good cook. Why? Because you do hot water cornbread and I prefer sweet cornbread. Hmm. Is is that fair? It's not fair to call you a bad cook because that but it makes sense that my values and beliefs make help me make that decision. But if I can unpack it.
0: Yeah. Unpack it.
1: It doesn't take long at all. It's just if people are receptive and curious and intrigued and so my job is to keep people curious. You know, at the end of the day, I'm a teacher. I love teachers. They're my favorite people. The nurses. But teachers are my favorite people. And it, it's, it's a, to teach, you have to be able to engage with the people that are in front of you, to know your knowledge very well, your content, right? And then use the environment around you to help to position the message and, and, and deliver that message. That's all I want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, develop great content and then deliver it to people who need it. So all I have to do is create a situation where you can learn well. Okay, I'll do that.
0: Right, right, and you get them beyond being uncomfortable or get them in that right level of uncomfortable, but find some commonality. Yes. Because I I think that's been one of the things that's helped me through a lot of these difficult times is just finding one element that we can agree upon Mm -hmm. and then we have some place to work from.
1: That's exactly it, that's exactly it. And most of us have multiple places of connection. You know, I did a a conversation between two people who happen to be politically misaligned. And at the beginning of the conversation could easily level set them. They both have spouses. They both have children that they love. They both dog parents, right? They both own homes. They both are very engaged in their communities. We can start there. Mm -hmm. We can start there. There's so many things that we agree upon to allow one or two pieces where we might be diametrically opposed to create all of these rifts. hmm, I think we can do better. Mm -hmm. It's just about... Uh, being able to teach that kind of critical thinking and critical connection.
0: Yeah. I'm gonna throw some loaded terms at you. Racist, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, racist and anti-racist. Of course, those terms are being thrown around a lot lately. Um, Is there a difference? Is there a way we can work through those terms? Sure,
1: and let me slide one in the middle, non-racist, right? I think many of us have this idea that we can identify, if somebody said something that was clearly racist, Right, are clearly sexist, right? that, that uh, women aren't smart. Of course they can't be smart. They can't run organizations. That's clearly a sexist statement, right? Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, there's this sort of anti-sexist or anti-racist. The, the extremes are easier to identify. Let me spend some time in the middle. So this phrase non-racist. There's many of us that have said, well, I'm, 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 an, I'm not racist, I'm, a, I, I'm non-racist, absolutely. And I say, well, well, give me some non-racist behaviors. Give me one. And I would challenge someone to give me a non-racist behavior that at its, had its uh, guts doesn't either facilitate a racist mindset or facilitate an anti-racist mindset.
0: Because the number one response will be is I have a friend of that race. Sure,
1: and, and? <laughs> <laughs> like, and so my thing, I wanna unpack that. Tell me what that friendship is. Tell me what that connection is. What do you do? How do you define friend? What does that mean? Right. So when we start to unpack these things, then we can see there's that um, it it relates to our Jewish friends and our Jewish community where they said, you know, um, I'm paraphrasing, but they if I don't look out for when they came for other people, eventually they're going to come for me. Mm -hmm. Right. They came for my neighbor. They came for my friend. They came for my parents and I did nothing when they came for me and I looked for help. There was no one to help me. Mm -hmm. This person was being non the whole time. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And then when the time came, there was no one for them. That non-behavior facilitated the taking of people, Hmm. right? The taking of something from those people. If I know that you're getting paid less than me, and we're doing the same job, and I don't say anything, what am I doing? Right, right. My silence, my passivity, it encourages a negative behavior.
0: And it's a response, even though you think I'm doing nothing. That's right. But it is a very deliberate response. A
1: non-response is a response, right? But that bystander behavior. Can you be an upstander? or are you going to be a bystander? So in this anti-racist piece, if I sort of end with that, it's about doing something. It's about engaging, it's about uh, uh, pushing, it's about asking questions, it's about um, developing conversations, it's about challenging people, it's about challenging the norms, it's about asking questions, it's about raising your hand. You have to be doing something. It's not enough to have a black friend or a brown friend or a white friend, it's what do you do with that friendship, mm-hmm. right? Maybe you tap them on the, on the shoulder and said, hey, This, this, I saw this thing on the news, you're my friend. I just wanna check on you, make sure you're okay. You you okay?
0: Mm.
1: Right? Maybe it's that. So now we've activated our friendship, right? And so if you're willing to do that, okay, I, I see what you're doing here. But if you're just like, well, I have one of those. Well, this is not a zoo. Right, this is a way that you just bring your friend out when people come to visit for dinner parties and, and, and cocktail <laughs> arrangements. Yeah. I mean, no, we have to do more. We have to activate our, our, anti, our, our anti-racism, our anti-sexism, or whatever the case might be. So that, to me, is the difference. It, that, that non-place is a place of you know, passivity, to your point, or not doing it. It, it. It's facilitating one thing or the other. And maybe it's been a safe place for many of us to be. But I think moving forward, that is the place where you will get left behind.
0: Wow. Definitely get left behind. So you have some experiences that you're hosting, um, ways, I I believe, they're to facilitate conversation Mm -hmm. and to build understanding. Tell me a bit more about those.
1: Sure. So one of the things that has come out of, of these tough times that we're having is that Uh, Small group conversations I have determined for myself and for my team are absolutely been the most beneficial We've gotten the most uh, positive feedback the most impactful feedback from these small group conversations So then how do we do that? We create a uh, space where eight nine maybe ten people with a trained Facilitator can be taken through a series of difficult conversations around diversity inclusion and bias We start with race because race is the one that has been thrust into many of our inboxes in a variety of ways but that doesn't mean that there aren't other very important critical pieces of diversity, gender being one, religion, politics, et cetera. We have to learn to talk about these difficult things. We can't shy away from them. doesn't mean we have to agree. Yeah. But we do have to have a skill set that says, I can uh, hear what you have to say. I can listen intently. You might teach me something. I might mess around and learn something if, I if I'm quiet enough. Mm-hmm. And the reverse, mm-hmm. right? So we set up these opportunities for people to learn. We design a curriculum that helps to push the, and pull them through it. It's one hour a week, generally speaking, and we have pre-work and homework. But we've also devised to have a four-week experience, we also have a two-hour experience, and we have a one-hour experience. And these, all of these allow people the opportunity to engage in deep conversations around diversity, inclusion, and bias. And to do what we call is keeping people the right kind of uncomfortable throughout that. And we've done it both for organizations as part of our um, diversity, inclusion, unconscious bias solutions platform, but we also are doing it most recently for parents. And to give them the opportunity to figure out how they can help build great humans, right, mm. by becoming better humans themselves. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting to see how uh, people react differently when you ask them about diversity, inclusion and bias relative to work versus at home.
0: At home. You know, I got a call from one of my clients in the middle of, of what was happening in, in 2020. And they said, we want to make a statement. Mm-hmm. But before we release that statement, we want you to read it. We, we don't want to release it until we have another set of eyes on it. Is that a small step or there's the types of things that organizations should be doing to hopefully um, present you know, a more authentic, more transparent face forward?
1: I think it's both. I think it's a small step, but it's also something that, that organizations should be doing. because you know, to, to the point of if they don't have anybody on staff that can read it, why is that? Yeah. Let's put a pin in that and let's get back to that because we have a right now issue right, that you're gonna help them uh, create, uh, find a better solution for, but your longer term solution is, your team is not comprehensive. You have a gap, you have a, a knowledge, an experiential gap. And if you were looking for somebody to be involved in uh, technology and to build out your tech side of the house, but you didn't have a tech person, what would you do? Right,
0: go hire You'd the go right hire person. You'd go hire somebody,
1: right? And so that doesn't mean that you have to go out and find somebody with, with brown skin to solve your brown problem. It does mean you need to find somebody that has diversity, inclusion, and bias acumen to help you solve your diversity, inclusion, and bias problem. He, she, or they don't have to be black Right. They do have to have a, a, a set of experiences that allow them to ask questions and to speak truth to power and a knowledge base that helps them to push an organization along. You know, I've, I've been asked the question more than a few times. Is it OK for a diversity, inclusion and bias professional to be a white person? Well, yes, we need all the help we can get. We need he grab an oar. Let's get to work. Yeah. Right. So I'm completely fine with that. But I need you to be good. And you have to be able to answer those different questions that I'm not gonna get as a diversity professional.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If I'm a white guy, somebody should ask me, so talk to me about how, as a white person, you're a diversity, inclusion, bias, for how did you get there? I need to be able to tell my story, right? right? And I think that's, that's, valuable. that's valuable, right? So all of that is, is important. So to your point about your client that came to you and said, hey, can we get a little help? Yeah, I think it's a little help, and I think that's a right now solution for what looks like, it looks to be a symptom of a much larger and deeper problem within that organization.
0: Larger problem, and something else that I've seen organizations try to do is have the blind resumes where they Mm -hmm. strip out the university, they strip out the name, Mm -hmm. maybe a few other things they have to take away because maybe there's a bias when you read that resume you read the name or you read where they're from or where they've lived, you see the address, Mm -hmm. you start to think, I believe this person is of this race.
1: Yeah, uh, those, are, those are challenges. So, so I think that that solution is a temporary fix.
0: Because
1: mm-hmm. if I'm the person that's reading these resumes and I'm the person with the bias, you haven't fixed me. You haven't helped me learn to be a better hiring manager, a better HR professional. What you've done is kept me from being triggered.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? So that's a functional problem. So that's a temporary Solution. What you want to do is help me become a better professional yeah. and help me understand that I have a bias that when I hear Gonzales, I think something. Mm. That when I see a name with a lot of uh, syllables and a bunch of uh, uh, consonants and vowels that I'm not familiar with, that I can barely pronounce, that has 10 letters, I start to think something. When I see that zip code, I say, oh, that's where you're from. Right. When I see reference to this kind of organization that you volunteer time with or that kind of organization. Oh, you're one of those people. Mm. Right. So you need to work on me so you can spend your time and your money and your effort on this resource to create blind resumes. Maybe that's something. But my suggestion to any of my clients, be you need to know that that's a temporary solution. Right. You need to work to get to a point where that's not required. You know that you've got good, strong hiring managers that work to create an environment where the best talent comes to the table. And you recognize that that talent as informed by a person's gender or ethnic makeup or international background, it it can enrich the conversation that they bring to the table.
0: Yeah. Right. Right. You know, James, I'm hearing from you that it's not just up to the organization. There's so much that's on the individual innate in the individual that they need to work on before they go to the organization and try to expect the organization to change in order to be able to um, be more welcoming to other races and cultures and nationalities.
1: It's yes and, right? So organizations do have a responsibility, but organizations are oftentimes led by humans. And so those humans have to lead, right? And they have to, to lead in such a way that there's expectations that the most junior member new hire knows we're on this journey, And it's going to be a little bumpy, right? But we're going to go through these bumps together. We're going to grow together. We're going to start off with this temporary blind resume solution. But please know for six months, we're going to be working our hiring managers to make sure that they are lessening and lessening the negative impact of unconscious bias. Because we need to get to a point where we don't need that crutch anymore. Mm -hmm. Right? How are we going to go out and go from being an organization that has, say, no females in our board to having 40, 50, 51 percent? How are we going to do that? Well, one, you, you, before you think, you, in addition to thinking about that, is this an environment where they would even want to come? Maybe they have decided not to apply because you all have bad behavior. Mm-hmm. So you have to work the inside of your culture to get that situated. Then you've got to figure out what is the intentional set of uh, strategies we're going to use to go out and find exceptionally talented women and convince them to be a part of our organization.
0: And that there's a future for them there. That's right.
1: That's right. So all of that has to be happening at the same time. And it's bumpy and it's awkward and it's clumsy and it's very hard work. But as I tell CEOs and other leaders, if you don't want to do the hard work, you need to hang it up Let somebody else do it. That's why you have all these fancy letters behind your name like CEO and COO and CFO. You want to be in charge and be in charge. You want to do the right thing. You got to do the right thing. There's that phrase faith without works. You got to put the work in you can't just believe Yeah, and so if you're not willing to put the work in let's see if we can find somebody that that will.
0: Absolutely So to that point if you could give one piece of advice or a focal point to a seasoned executive a CEO a business owner Especially in today's times. What Mm -hmm. would that be?
1: one is to lead to do what is uncomfortable right? The, my mom has told me a long time ago that the, the view for a sled dog is exactly the same except for the lead dog, right? So be the lead dog, get out there and and get hit by the winds of change, right? And have the courage to do that thing, which is extremely uncomfortable and do it in public.
0: Mm.
1: Own those things that you all haven't done very well. We haven't Uh, Hired or recruited or promoted women or brown people or immigrants in the way that we should have as a result We've harmed some people economically and otherwise you got to own that And then you can go fix it Right.
0: Yeah,
1: and you have to do that in public
0: So that's a level of accountability Absolutely,
1: I mean this is not this is not the time there really in my view never was a time for leaders to do this kind of work in private There's some private stuff you have to do. Yeah, but you have to say out loud. We're working on this thing And we're going to come out of it like, you know, um, like brand new baby elephants trying to figure out how to walk. Yeah, but and each step has impact. And people that are watching you lead are going to figure out how to lead better. You're going to be role modeling excellence for them. In this case, that excellence is I'm vulnerable, I'm being authentic, and we're flawed, but we're going to get better, right? So, as as the other phrase that's uh, put a a bun on my uh, uh, animal uh, analogies, you know. Run with the big dogs or stay on the porch, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm, I'm all about pushing organizational leaders to do what is hard, do what is difficult. Leave it up to them to know what too far is. You know, you don't want to, if you're too far out in front of your, your team, you're just a person out for a walk. So you got you to pace that, but you got to pull and push and create the environment so that you can press forward.
0: That's good. Well, what is next for you? You are a public speaker. You are an author. You run a corporation. What is next?
1: Well, I think it's going to be about continuing to teach. You know, I, I try, to stay, uh, try to stay humble. You know, life has been good for the most part. You know, everybody has their challenges, but life is good. Business is good. There's a lot of things that need, need work. So I have a lot of learning yet I need to do, but I also have a lot of leading that's yet to be done. And so um, we talked about doing some things with uh, experienced uh, leaders. So I think a lot of what I need to do next is make sure that I'm creating a path and an opportunity for people that are gonna come by and surpass what I have done. There's a lot of really smart, talented people that might be transitioning from other kinds of uh, areas of, of expertise, other industries to come in and create solutions to see things I can't see. So I need to ask for help from some of these really bright and talented folks to provide a platform for them, to provide a shoulder and a leg up for them to do great things. I think that's part of what I need to do next. I need to listen to great ideas and help those great ideas become greater. All of that needs to happen next. There's there's a lot of work to be done. I remain optimistic that that it can all get done. You know, between children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews, I have expectations for them, but my expectations have to be undergirded with the work that I intend to do. So I intend to keep working hard and provide an opportunity for people to come and surpass me in their work.
0: Great. Well, Dr. James Pogue, keep up the great work and thank you for being on The Focus.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.